Hello and welcome. I'm Julie Elliott, the editor of Module 9 at 1122.space and your host for Module 9's new podcast. As well, this is my first spin at podcasting, so please go easy on me as I grow through the process. I will be making improvements along the way, and your feedback is welcome. Simply send an email to julie at 1122.space. If you have a research idea that you would like me to dig into, you can use the same email address for correspondence. Similar to Module 9's blog at 1122, I consider valuable insights from peer-reviewed studies and scholarly journals to shape my analysis of a topic. Information that I think will matter to you, because it often matters to us all. Also, be sure to share the knowledge. To paraphrase, a curious mind is a terrible thing to waste. And now, on with the show. Hello again, I am Julie Elliott, and you're listening to the podcast from Module 9 at 1122, where I review data that doesn't make the cut in the editing of a Module 9 blog, but that often still adds up to a valuable discussion. Today's podcast is a follow-on to my recent research blog, America's Children in the Age of Rage and Resistance, and I will be reviewing a topic that holds a lot of weight on my list of priorities. That topic is our children. This week... I am discussing America's children, with a view on the evolution of their place in society. To do this, we'll have to go back in time a little bit and journey forward. My starting point, coincidentally, is the year I entered the world. I chose this year for two very important reasons, both political and social shifts that have shaped the lives of children in America began in earnest that year. It was the year that President Lyndon B. Johnson and his wife Lady Bird began America's War on Poverty. And the War on Poverty led to Head Start programs for pre-K as well as efforts to enact child care reforms. At the time, America reawakened its consideration of child welfare, and a new perspective of education emerged. The year is 1964, the last year of the boomer generation. I am also a part of the very first generation of American teens, regardless of family income level or race, with a mom who likely worked outside of the home. And it was a time when time as a family unit began its decline. Personal achievement tied to evolving corporate technologies shaped the psychology of well-educated professional wage earners. Affirmation of success and acceptance began shifting away from family-centric values. And this shift impacted children. A loss of family centricity was reflected by an American divorce rate that reached an historical high in the 1980s. And the dynamics that led to a decline in the frequency of family structure left a void for, and an increase of, external inputs that shifted individual reflection, admiration, and ultimately, aspirations. Moreover, individual achievements arose as the most notable of social values. And for working adults, corporate life and professional prosperity promised that success. This psychology was marketed vigorously in all forms of media and corporate-sponsored programs. 
At the same time, in part for many, as a result of the splitting of households, a two-parent income was a common necessity for American families, particularly if you wanted a home, a car or two, private school for your children, a club membership, or an annual vacation for the family, all of which were again marketed as the hallmarks of American success. By the 80s, America had assimilated a corporate-based performance-related measure of personal success. And as families continued their trek to the suburbs and plenished their homes with the latest edition of mass-produced products, Americans were in the process of baking into social norms the expectation of a dual-income household. Further, our children inherited their share of this physical and psychological future shaped by the demands of corporate values. In fact, corporations would begin actively targeting America's children. Advertising to children began its rapid rise in the late 60s and early 70s, and education and government policies were retooled to reflect corporate values. From birth through high school, America's children represented a vast resource of highly malleable unprotected revenue, both as consumers and future labor. In the mid-70s, a few careful adults sought in earnest to minimize the social risk impacting America's children on a psychological level by increasing marketing and advertising protections that would shield children from hazardous consumer models. However, that effort came to a swift and certain end in the Reagan era through the protest of corporations and the subsequent enactment by the FTC of the Federal Trade Commission Improvements Act of 1980. Quote, the commission shall not have any authority to promulgate any rule in the children's advertising proceeding pending on the date of the enactment of the Federal Trade Commission Improvements Act of 1980. End quote. This decision opened the door to a psychological battering of America's children, unleashing a constant stream of manufactured social values that supported corporate narratives and profits. A consumer boom to corporate America, raising the rate of kids spending from $4.2 billion to $60 billion within six years of the FTC ruling, and that was in the 80s. In a look at the educational system we rely on for public school curriculum and how it affects our children, I love an article I read in Truth Out last week titled, U.S. Corporations Are Micromanaging Curricula to Miseducate Students. Quote, the emphasis is not on critical thinking. Miseducating for the global economy lists six imperatives that structure corporate-funded curricula. One, the global economy must be presented as a natural phenomenon. Two, schools must be silent about the global economy's hierarchical structure. Three, the global economy's nature is not open to critical inquiry. Four, the curriculum must assume there are winners and losers, and the student's job is to get an education to become a winner. Five, schooling assumes the legitimacy of businesses paying people as little as possible. And six, schools must not teach about the global economy's harm to the earth and its ecology. End quote. This leads me to my last reference, the politics of corporate philanthropy. In the documentary series, The Raising of America, 
Are we crazy about our kids? Rob Duggar, an economist and former partner in a billion-dollar hedge fund, wants to invest more in parents. Quote, When you invest in all kids, in all families, you get on a higher growth path that provides more opportunities, more revenues, and enables a sustainable economy to generate the kind of jobs and growth that we need. End quote. Spoken in earnest, Duggar outlines diligence needed to craft future labor essential for the continuity of corporate wealth as the purpose for changing reckless social patterns. Indeed, this is the majority of corporate America we have come to know, weighing in on behalf of society only when profits are at risk. As I began the new year, I had an opportunity to reflect on a seasonal favorite that mirrors where we are today. In Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, at the end of the story, Scrooge lifts Tiny Tim upon his shoulders. This gesture was intended by the author as a summation of the novel. An older generation must seek to lift up a younger generation impacted by selfishness and greed. This, too, is something we must do in this generation. We must look back and adjust our course with the knowledge that the errors that have been made can egregiously affect our children and generations to come. Well, that's all, folks. Thank you for listening. I wish everyone the best care and keeping of America's children and all children in the new year. For resources used in this podcast, visit Module 9 at www.1122.space and come back again soon. Happy New Year!